Isaiah chapter 53 says, Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. This evening, we are going to reflect on this cataclysmic event in all of human history. And I welcome you to our Good Friday service. And as Matt Chandler said on the video, I want to have a funeral. I want to understand tonight that in Christ, my sins have been paid for and are gone. And I want to die to myself And I want to live again to Jesus. And I pray that this evening, God would massively help us do that as we seek to honor our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and then we will worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for drawing us to this place this evening. Thank you for the privilege of reflecting on your death What an awesome, awesome thing this is. We humble ourselves before you, Jesus, knowing that you are the God of the universe. What more could we say? What you have done for us is, it's really unthinkable. It's it's unimaginable. We can't even begin to fathom the weight of that moment that you are hanging on the cross. The crux of the universe, the pinnacle, the most important event in human history. And we pause this evening to reflect with great weight and sobriety upon your last words, Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit, and power, powerfully move among us and, and cause us, cause us to worship you in an incredible way this evening as we seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'd like to sing two hymns from our hearts with our souls engaged. Let's stand, please. And sing.
Luke 23, verses 33 through 37. And when he came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and he said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The first words of Jesus from the cross are only found in the Gospel of Luke. They are words of gracious intercession. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He was praying for his enemies, even as he had taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. These words raised a question in my mind, though. Don't they seem to infer that the people were not guilty because they didn't know what they were doing? Or at least that their ignorance is a reason why God should forgive them. But they were guilty. Otherwise, they would not need forgiveness. They were guilty for not knowing what they were doing. They should have known. But sin blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, just like some of us, before we came to know the Lord. As Paul wrote later in 1 Corinthians 2, if the rulers of this age had understood, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But aren't these first words both a terrible indictment and the sweetest prayer? They are an indictment because they were guilty of not knowing that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. And the sweetest prayer because it shows us the merciful, loving, compassionate heart of Jesus. At that very moment, he was offering himself as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His crucifixion was the reason he could pray and the very grounds on which that forgiveness could be obtained. What a Savior. The fruits of his prayer will never be fully known until the books are opened on the last day. Perhaps These words were the first step in the penitent thief's conversion, which was to shortly follow, or the centurion's confession that surely this was the Son of God, or the beating of the breast of those who witnessed his death. We do know that 3,000 were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. Some, perhaps, were among the Lord's murderers. This same love for his enemies should reside in the hearts of his people, just like it did in Stephen, who later prayed when they were stoning him to death. Christ loves sinners. He came down from heaven to offer his life for us. Good Friday is a reminder of this, and Easter is a celebration of his resurrection, proving that the Father heard this prayer and accepted his sacrifice. He is full of pity and compassion. There is none too wicked or none too far gone. Take heart. 
If the ones who crucified the Savior could be forgiven, so can you. He paid the price so he could petition the Father to be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Hear his prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them. Believe he is now, even at the Father's right hand, interceding for those who will repent and put their trust in him. Luke 23, 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered him rebuking. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. This passage and these words of Jesus brought to my mind a question. Where does your confidence lie? Here we are in the middle of the central point of redemptive history, And Luke shares with us this scene at the cross. Scripture shows us Christ, the perfect God-man, and two men, all three hanging on a cross and about to suffer the punishment of death. One man, still full of himself, thinks and speaks with disbelief and hostility toward Christ. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The second man sees Jesus for who he is. And with a sense of his own sin, witnesses to the truth, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then looking to Jesus, he humbly asked, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. This man has received a gift of faith. Where? Does your confidence lie? And when, how does Jesus respond? Jesus, he's hanging on the cross, being crucified for being king of the Jews, not yet finished with his humiliation and suffering. And he simply answers, matter of fact, with love. I assure you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, the dying redeemer, extends, extends salvation to a lost one one of his people. Where does your confidence lie? Earlier in his ministry, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world, that he might condemn the world, 
but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Did Jesus enter his kingdom? Does he have the power to grant a place with him in heaven? You bet. The real question is, where does your confidence lie? I have a confession. I really didn't want to do this. Like many of you, public speaking is uncomfortable for me. So when Pastor Jonathan called, asked me to do this, I quickly began to make excuses. I have had a lot of experience making excuses. So when he asked, I didn't have to hesitate to come up with one that sounded mighty pious to me. The Lord has a gift to me in this area, Pastor Jonathan, I said. Thankfully, he didn't stop there, but asked if I would listen to the words that he was still looking for men to speak on. So he read, Woman, behold your son. And something stirred within me. I quickly tried to squelch and reiterated my lack of giftedness. But I'd already made a commitment to pray and to, to think about the passage again. Then the Lord was kind to me even further and gave me the opportunity to read the passage immediately after hanging up. I began to read and the Lord began to melt my hardness, my discomfort. I don't know discomfort. My Savior nailed to a tree, the thorny crown still stinging his skull, the sweat running down, the gashes inflicted with expert skill by the Roman soldiers, the incredible pain and effort with each breath, the spikes in his hand and his feet tearing fresh with each one. At that moment, I knew my cowardliness of not wanting to be uncomfortable for four little minutes was anything but Christ-like. Which leads me to my first question. Do you know the boundaries of your comfort zone? What was the Savior concerned about in that moment? How did he use one of those hard-earned last breaths? John records it like this, that moment in history, he says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. He looked out, saw his mother, took compassion on her and loved her. He saw her prostrate on the ground, weeping, and he loved her perfectly. He knew his mother and the needs that his death would bring. She needed a protector, a provider. Yes, he could have come down off that cross and cared for her physical needs, but he loved her much deeper than that. A few minutes after speaking these words, he would accomplish something that cares for Mary to this moment perfect payment for her sins and life with him forever after. He looked down beyond his pain and agony. He saw a need and met that need perfectly. So this leads me to a second question. 
Do you really see the people around you each and every day? Something else made, was made evident in that moment as well. Jesus had developed an infinite friendship with John, a friendship that enabled Jesus to commit the earthly care of his mother to him. That's not a shallow, how-you-doing-today kind of friendship. That kind of relationship takes time and effort. It takes confessing your shortcomings, sins, and needs. It takes a willingness to love someone enough to ask the hard questions. That's the type of relationship the Savior had with John. This leads me to your third question. Do you have someone like that in your life? So we have these three challenges. Let's get out of our comfort zone. What is the Lord calling you, calling me today, do today, this week, this year? What will it look like for you to pick up your cross and follow him today? Got that in your mind, in your heart? Now do it. Don't let the fear of discomfort hinder you anymore. Secondly, look beyond yourself. Be observant. Really see the people that the Lord brings into your life each and every day. Get to truly know them and their needs. Then, as the Lord gives you opportunity and means, meet some of those needs. Allow the Lord to use you in that way. And then finally, develop true Christ-centered relationships. Find someone who isn't afraid to challenge you, to let you know that your breath stinks. Because after all, out of your heart, the mouth speaketh, right? Be willing to be that kind of person to someone else. Let's fill this place with the sound of ironing, iron sharpening iron. Lastly, imagine what this church family will look like at next year's Good Friday service if we look to Christ and follow his perfect example. Carl, I too got that call. I was camping and Jonathan called, told me what was going on, and I start going, okay, what can I say, what can I say? And I, I just didn't have an answer. So we started talking about, I said, well, read them to me because I, I, don't, I don't really remember all of them. I said, I don't know, I don't know. He said, well, you got to pick one. So I came down to two and he said, but you can only have one. So I have Matthew. And I said to PT this afternoon, I said, if the Bible were the ocean, this is the Marianas Trench of the Bible. So we're not going to be able to plumb the depths. Matthew 27, verse 46. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, of course, I don't know what that means. So I called Pastor Joe, and I said, you got to help me because you did, you did this a few years ago. And he gave me a book by A.W. Pink, The Seven Sayings of Christ on the Cross. And then there, he directs me to Psalm 22, and I want to read that because we see into the heart of Christ. In Psalm 53 that Jonathan read, it's kind of an account of the crucifixion. It's brutal. It's gory. It's, it's unspeakable. In 22, we see into the heart of Christ. We see into his mind what he's thinking. He says, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompassed me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Can you hear the crucifixion? My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. But for those three hours, there was no help for our Savior. David goes on to speak of help coming. But when Christ was on the cross, the people deserted him. His disciples deserted him. There was no help. His father turned away. Why? Because earlier in Matthew, we read at Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened and God said, Behold, this is my son, my beloved son. And then that later, God turns away from his beloved son. What, I, I don't understand. I'm, I love my sons. I can't imagine turning away. Just magnify that infinitely because we're talking about a holy, holy, infinite God who turned away from a holy, holy, infinite son. Well, we know it's because Christ was working out for us forgiveness of sin. It's called propitiation. He took our place. We deserve to be on that tree. And yet he bore the wrath, that undiluted wrath, if I can borrow one of Pink's phrases, the undiluted cup of the wrath of God was poured out on the sun. I can't, I can't go there. I can't help. The Holy Spirit has to take us. So he says, my God, my God, even in his darkest hour, his father, he, he was still looking to his father. If anybody had the reason to say, I'm done with this, he does and he looks to his father. He still trusts in his father because he knows who his father is. But that's all he's got to hold to is his faith in his father because his father, he can't see his father's face. It's easy to trust when the sun's shining. When darkness comes, that's when you glorify God, when you say, he's still my God. I don't understand, but he's my God and I trust him. And so Christ looks to his father and he feels forsaken. And my question to you is, have you ever felt forsaken? 
If you're here tonight, you're really forsaken. Because to be forsaken, there is no hope. There's hope because he was forsaken for us. All you got to do is look to him and cry out. Because he endured all that for us. We don't have to. But also know that if you do not, if I can say this correctly, even the sinners in hell aren't really forsaken because they're getting what they deserve. So really, Christ is the only person who ever lived that I think's ever truly been forsaken. But you don't have to be forsaken. You don't have to endure it. He did. So my question to you is, what are you waiting for? If God didn't spare his own son and you reject that, what awaits you? Read the Psalms. Jesus is all through the Psalms. 22. I've never had a day like that. Nobody's ever had a day like that. If I can say it, pardon my, to say I've had a hell of a day. No, you haven't. Jesus had that on the cross. And that's what waits all of us that don't turn to him and, and take what he's done for us. Praise the Lord. Thank you. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 28, records three words that Jesus spoke while he hung on that cruel cross. These three words were, I am thirsty. We we who have been well taught are very aware of scriptures like Titus 2.13 that declare that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. We are also familiar with Bible verses that state in unmistakable terms that Christ became man. John 1.14 declares that the word became flesh. Luke 2 declares that Jesus was born and describes how Jesus grew. John 4.6 tells us that Jesus grew tired And my key verse, John 19, 28, tells us that Jesus became thirsty. In Matthew 4, we read that Jesus became hungry. And then in Luke 23, that Jesus became too weak to even carry his own cross. We know from each of the gospel accounts that Jesus died. And we know that Jesus had a real human body after his resurrection as Luke chapter 24 records the words of Jesus to his disciples. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. As a man, Jesus clearly displayed human emotions. In Matthew 26, we read that his soul was very sorrowful, even to the point of death. In John 11, we read that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. The author to the Hebrews wrote that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. 
John Calvin summed it up as follows. Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus also has a human mind, as we read in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As a man, Jesus experienced temptation. The book of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Gospel Coalition has a great resource on the person of Christ. The following statements come from this resource. Jesus was human and yet did not sin. The fact that he became man reveals the nature of true humanity. His humanity gives a glimpse of what our humanity would be were it not tainted with sin. He shows that the problem with humanity is not that we are humans, but rather that we are fallen. Jesus' human nature shows the potential of humanity as God intended. This display of sinless humanity reaffirms God's declaration that creation, in all its original dimensions, both material and spiritual, including humanity, is by divine definition very good, referring to God's own declaration in Genesis 1. David Mathis, in his paper entitled, Jesus is Fully Human, makes the following statement. Jesus took a human body to save our bodies, and he took a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming man in his emotions, he could not have saved our emotions, and without taking a human will, he could not save our will. In the words of Gregory of Nazianzus, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. My text is taken from John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the victory cry of the completion of all the Father had sent him here to do. This is no less than the historical once-for-allness of the atonement, the vicarious obedience, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation and redemption performed by the Lord of glory when once for all he purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 9. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not meant, not, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Imagine this scenario. Suppose I foolishly ask the Lord this, Lord Jesus, I know you have paid the debt of sin I owe, but could I have my sin of pride back for a wee while? I thought it might be cool to feel really self-important again with a really big ego. What would the Lord likely say? What We could imagine something like this. Why would you ask for that? Don't you remember what it did to you, Russ? The grief, loss of friends, the ugly feeling of humiliation, of wounded pride, the resentment, loneliness, bitterness it always produced. You were not happy or content with anything. You really don't want to go back there. No, absolutely not. You can't have it back. You have enough problems with the remnants of that sin, even as we speak. But I don't want to keep it, Lord. Just borrow it for a little while. What part of no don't you understand, Russ? I said I put it away finally and completely. I finished the full payment for all of it. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Not ever again. But where did it go, Lord? I don't remember. You don't remember? I've told you in my word. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And again, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Not only that, I cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. Well, I could never find them there, Lord. Precisely. And furthermore, so great is my loving kindness toward those who fear me. As far as the east is from the west, so far do I remove your transgressions from you. Circle the earth. You won't find them anywhere. The hymn writer said it well. Hark, the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See, it rends the rocks asunder, shakes the earth, and veils the sky. It is finished. It is finished. Hear the dying Savior cry. It is finished. Oh, what pleasure do these precious words afford. Heavenly blessings without measure flow to us from Christ the Lord. In Colossians we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by it. The cross is gone. The nails are gone. The kingdom of darkness shamed and triumphed over. It is most definitely finished. It's true then. It's really true. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Luke chapter... 23, we have verses 44 through 46. 
And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The seventh statement from the cross shows completeness, not only because of the number seven, but because of what happens. We see Jesus hanging there, weak and suffering physically. He is exhausted emotionally and pained spiritually. However, we also see him showing great restraint and self-control. To the last moment, he is without sin. He does not exert his own will, but continues to follow the plan of redemption that was prepared in eternity. Now it is time. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Period. It's done. It's over. Did you notice? He breathed his last. Right right there. At the end of that sentence, there is a dot. A point. And all of history pivots on that point. Before this point, Jesus is alive. After this point, Jesus is dead. Nothing like this has ever happened in all of history. Oh, there were crucifixions. The Romans crucified a lot of people. And there were always crowds who would come out to see the bloody spectacle. However, this time, This time, it is different. The people had been there through the day, yelling and jeering, mocking and sneering. And yet, this is Jesus, the teacher who read the scriptures with such authority and taught from an understanding that they had never heard. Some thought he was just telling silly stories. Others found insight and revelation as never before. He healed people. He fed multitudes. He walked on water. He drove out demons. He calmed storms. He raised the dead. Some hoped and others feared that he might use his power to come down from the cross to avenge himself and the Jews. He said he was the Messiah. Now he is dead. Everyone knows it. And things are suddenly different. The Roman centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. It seems as though all the joy, 
all the light has been drained from the world. Here is Jesus, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, teacher, friend. As his body begins to grow cold, sorrow grips the land. The people become quiet, turn and leave, grieving. And some probably ask themselves, what have I done? The Romans and the Jews put Jesus in this condition, naked, beaten, bruised and bloody. They tried to kill him. But they couldn't. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is appropriate for them to ask what they have done. Because he gave up his life for their sins. And ours. Stand, please, to sing.